Welcome to How to Go to Work, the podcast that explores ways to get started. I'm author Lucy Clayton, and each week I'll be asking a guest to take us right back to the beginning. We'll be talking to people from all sorts of industries about how they began, how they chose their career or how it chose them, how they've met challenges or exploited chances, the times when they've been held back or inspired further. We know that even if you've had good support at home and in education, there are lots of things no one tells you about making the transition into the workplace. It's an almost universal rite of passage, and yet it's still shrouded in mystery. And a lot of this is simply because people can forget to talk about those early moments of their career once they reach the apex of it. So for young people, it's often hard to imagine what the journey looks like to the job of your dreams. So we're going to find out from the people who have been there and done all that. And today I'm talking to Rosie Vogel-Eads. She's the fashion bookings director of British Vogue, where she regularly works with the industry's most eminent photographers, including Tim Walker, Craig McDean, Michael Janssen and Alastair McClellan. She's central to the creation of so many iconic images. And in addition to her role at British Vogue, she's a sought-after casting director, working on shows and advertising campaigns for fashion's finest. She works with a range of artists from emerging to the most established, and naturally, she's the best dressed person I know, <laughs> Rosie. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Thank um, you for having me. I want we should say we're recording this in situ in the office, so I feel more than usually professional yes. um, in, in the building. But tell me, what did you want to be when you grew up, right back at the beginning? Well, actually, I was sort of on track to be a concert violinist. That was what I was going to do. Um, so from a very young age, I played the violin, so from five. Um, and I was a music scholar at school, and that was always what I was going to do. And then I think it was sort of got into the last year of school, and I um, you know, was going to go to the Royal College of Music. And then, um, but I was, I was really interested in fashion. And I remember sort of at the school holidays, I was, would buy Vogue, and I would read it from literally from cover to cover um, in a sort of obsessive manner and I had a conversation with my violin teacher at the time it was a really wonderful woman who'd been my you know my teacher for sort of five or six years and she said look before you go and do this is there anything else that you're remotely interested in and I said well you know I would really love to um you know be a journalist or work at a magazine Mm -hmm. and she said look if there is anything that you want to do anything else that you want to do you shouldn't be a musician because it's so bloody hard yeah. that you've really and got to consuming, it, yeah totally all consuming and I was suddenly like oh wow it's kind of like a light came on because I've been sort of been being groomed to yeah. go and do this like it was always like it was a done deal you I was going to be a musician that's what everyone wanted um and then suddenly I was like maybe I don't have to do that maybe I can go off and actually do something different at university so my the real thing that I loved was uh, English literature so I went off and I read that instead um do you think that if that piece of advice or that question had come from a different source it might have had a different impact on you there's something about your violin teacher being the one that kind of allows you to yeah exactly because I think it's one thing you know she'd been the person who'd been pushing me but then also um you know yeah I think if it had come from someone else it would have felt totally different like if it come from a parent maybe but it was sort of almost like she was allowing me Mm. to to think and I just hadn't kind of thought because it was like right you know you've been a music scholar you've done this it was always what I was going to do I'd spent every holiday was a you know some sort of music camp or doing some other kind of thing so it was it felt like that was it was definitely what was going to happen and suddenly I was like ooh, it's an out and you know as much as I loved music it was then it was actually a real relief for me in a way to 
go to university and just to be able to study what I really loved, which was literature. Was it a difficult choice or was it a politically difficult choice for you at the time? <laughs> How old are you when you're trying to make this? So I think it was like, seven, yeah, yeah. like 17, 18. Um, I think my dad was a bit disappointed, but then also, you know, it was also very supportive as well. Um, so, yeah, it was... It wasn't it wasn't difficult because it was suddenly like it actually felt like the pressure was off because I think mm. being a musician is just so hard. And, you know, being a classical musician, it was, you know, I was I loved it, but I also found it quite terrifying. Yeah. Um, and obviously I had a talent, but I was never, you know, I, I don't know what I would have. I was never going to be, you know, I can't even now. I'm not going to be Nigel. What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't even know. Don't even know his Vanessa, name. Vanessa, he's a You know, whatever. <laughs> I'm never going to be, I was never going to be like that thing. I probably would have been a sort of a jobbing, yeah. you know. Which in itself it. is a very clear lifestyle, Exactly, right? yeah. You know, playing in the seconds and doing whatever. So thank God. So you don't, you've never regretted that. <laughs> no, I can't no. really see you doing that, I have to say. I, I can't really see you like schlepping up at the proms night after I know, night. and they always dress so badly. In a selection of, yeah, bad black I know, black and awful sort of taffeta, yeah, like, you know, something you can move in. It's never fabulous. Um, so yeah, I know I always, that's how I always hated that. You actively like clothes you can't move in. Yeah, of course. More, the more restrictive, the better. But actually, I always remember now that I remember that I hated having to go and buy something to wear for one of my recitals but should have been you know shopping should be I think shopping should be you know sort of a joyous thing and for me it was always like, oh Christ we've got to go and get another ugly blouse that Rosie can play her bloody violin in you know so to be free finally from those shackles as well so I suppose. A <laughs> I think it was suddenly else. freedom. <laughs> okay so growing up what was your first ever job? My first ever job, first proper sort of paid for money job um, was working in a pizza place. In um, We lived in America at the time and, and it was sort of like a holiday job um, at this pizza, pizza place slash deli. Um, and I was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Um, you sort of, you know, properly like trying to like pull the pizza dough and mine were always sort of ended up looking like polos because I, you know, with giant holes in the middle and I'd try and cover it with cheese, everything would burn <laughs> through. And they, you know, I mean, they all thought I was totally ridiculous and I was, it was just never going to be a passion of mine. Um, but I did, I sort of, I, I, you know, I learned some skills, but I really mainly, um, learned that I did not wish to work in the food and beverage industry. I mean, you're not hospitality's natural. <laughs> no, <laughs> certainly not. Certainly not. Um, and then actually, I think my next job was probably, I worked at Foxton's. Did you? I was a receptionist. In London? Mm, in the big one in Park Lane. Wow. Um, for a matter of about three weeks. Oh. Yeah. I was sacked for not being bubbly enough to be their receptionist. I don't think I was really <laughs> their vibe. I'd just sort of done my A-levels and I really thought I was like the dog's bollocks. Um, and I remember going through and correcting the grammar in lots of the... Um, the you know, Not hard to do. <laughs> no, I mean, I was literally like, this is, I literally, this isn't even a word. I just got an A in English literature A-level. I don't know if I've mentioned that. And, and they were literally, after three weeks, they were like... It's not working. So you think your, your attitude was not... <laughs> yeah, it was such... <laughs> looking back at it, I was such a pretentious little kid. I don't know what I think I was doing. And also, you know, also working in a state agency was just not my vibe no. either. Um, so, yes. Did you also do a selection of kind of university jobs that were all a bit 
I did. I worked at um, I worked in a bar in a local bar while I was at uni, um, just like one or two days a week, just to keep my parents happy that I wasn't entirely um, slacking off, which I mainly was. Um, and then, yeah, that I didn't really do that that many. I worked at Wimbledon, and um, one summer, in the members' restaurant, which was. Um, a lot of fun and we got you know got to see some celebs and (laughs) and you know serve some strawberries um I'm trying to think what other weird holiday jobs I had I think that was kind of it and so while at university so you're you having made a decision to pursue a different part of the one that had been sort of preordained I guess yeah since childhood while you were at university are you now plotting for your current role effectively I think so. Yeah, I was kind of, um, I kind of then thought, yeah, you know, fashion journalism would be something that I would, first of all, I just really loved doing my degree because I really loved English literature. And that was just, you know, as I said, it was such a great break to suddenly not have to, because when I was at school, I used to practice the violin for like four hours a day. So suddenly I went to university and I was like, oh my God, I don't have to practice. No one's checking up on me. I'm not going to kind of disappoint anyone if I don't, you know, do all of these things. So it was really nice to kind of immerse myself um, in not only the subject that I was studying, but also just like, you know, not having to practice for four hours a day. But do you think freed you, up a lot of time. But for did sort of, you take that discipline? It's quite hard to unlearn the discipline of something yeah. like that. Do you think you just applied it to a whole bunch of I other think things? Probably I applied it to drinking and going out um, probably a bit too much, possibly. <laughs> In a straight swap. Yeah, exactly. A direct swap. Um, actually, do you know what? No, I joined the rowing team at university because um, I was suddenly like, I'd never been allowed to play sports at school because I was always practicing the violin or in you know the orchestras and all of that kind of thing. So I was like, I'm going to be on the rowing team. So I did that with quite some vigor. Um, and which I really loved. So that kind of became uh, a thing. And also that was good. It's like the discipline, you you know, you're mm. up early and you're doing that, which I, I did really enjoy. I mean, I wasn't very good because I'm, I don't quite have the physique for a rower, um, not being very tall, um, but it was good. I really enjoyed doing that. Tell me about how we ended up here then, because what I think is particularly interesting about... But I guess about fashion generally, but I think probably even more specifically working in the magazine yeah. side of fashion is that it's an industry that has such a kind of cultural currency and and is often in pop culture really kind of sent up or kind of caricatured. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how kind of, you know, it's almost like how devil, Devil's Work yeah. Harder is, is the journey or in yeah. your experience. And I'm particularly interested in relation to kind of you starting out and then equally how you see people starting out now, whether yeah. there's a kind of change yeah. or indeed whether that kind of trips people up, actually. Yeah. So I read English at university and then I went to the London College of Fashion and did a postgrad in fashion journalism. And while I was doing that, I did some various sort of internships. Well, I worked while while I was doing that, I worked at Whistles, the one, the big one in St Christopher's Place, which at the time was very fabulous. <laughs> um, so I worked there while I was doing the course, and then I was doing various internships. Like I worked for Julian McDonald, mm-hmm. and then through that, I was working for Julian McDonald doing doing his show and I went to like the first ever fashion show which I thought was just you know the best thing <laughs> of all time Naomi Campbell was in the show I remember so distinctly it was just like such a sort of eureka moment I was like oh my god <laughs> this is it um, I've made it. 
and then so at his after show party um i saw i was at, i was at this time i was really obsessed with like you know the women um you know the women who worked within the fashion industry like the writers and people who worked at magazines like i could, you know i knew who they all were you know alex shulman kate Phelan, lucinda chambers all those people and hillary alexander who's a um you know a very famous fashion journalist who worked at the telegraph for many 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 years she i saw her at this party and i basically accosted her <clears throat> and i bet like <laughs> I just wouldn't leave her alone. And eventually she kind of gave me her card or her assistant gave me her card and I wrote to her and then she said, yeah, come and do an internship with me. So I went to go and do that with her for sort of two weeks and ended up staying, I think, for six weeks with her. And while I was doing that, then I applied for an internship at Vogue. Um, I got an internship at Vogue and did that for... Um, again, like a you know, it was a month, and then the person who was the bookings assistant at the time left while I was there, and I'd gotten on really well with the then bookings editor, um, and would stay you know in the evenings filing model cards. You know, in those days we used to have all the model cards sort of printed out, and we would file them alphabetically, which took hours. No one wanted to do it, but I loved doing that sort of thing. Um, and eventually, she gave me a job doing that. Tell me about because I think it's that sort of. If you find yourself in the right place at the right yeah. time, that's yeah, your half definitely. of the, that's half, yeah. it's only half of the equation. So the other bit is how do you, so for example, um, and so many young people I know are currently in that sort of internship track yeah. where they know, where they've really struggled to get there in the first yeah. place. The converting it to the, so that yeah. bit about, you know, it was supposed to be two weeks and I stayed. Yeah. What do you think are the qualities and what do you look for now in the qualities that make you more likely to be one of the ones that gets to stay? It's difficult because it's, I think it's, it's pretty simple. It's like, you know, be there early and be prepared to leave late. Like just stay. Like if you can see that people are still working, like be there to do. Because that's also like so much of like the good stuff happens after the end of the day. Right. Certainly here, it's just, it's just how it kind of works. Like when you're in this kind of a creative office and oftentimes when you're doing stuff that's to do with New York, for example, sometimes part of my day doesn't even start until like, four or five o'clock mm -hmm. and that's when suddenly decisions start getting made or here like you know that's when you kind of have emergencies in the fashion cupboard when you're like oh my god how the hell are we going to get that Valentino look from such and such it's like right it's in Paris now it's in New York now or like suddenly someone you know an editor will come in look at a rail and be like this is all wrong we need I, w I didn't want black I wanted white so suddenly the assistant's like ah running around you know frantically calling in and that's when like if an assistant's there you know or an intern's there you can be like right you mm -hmm. go off and do this and you might get you know when it's fraught is when suddenly you need more hands on deck so looking out for that kind of thing like when you can actually like and that's when you can really prove yourself is when you kind of like can step into the breach or you're there like waiting for you know waiting for those kind of opportunities um you know, I went to fashion college and no one there, I think, I, I hope it's different now because, you know, people come to talk to me about things like this more, much more now. But certainly when I was at fashion college, no one said, oh, there's a bookings department. There's the production department. I didn't know. So when I went to Vogue, I still kind of thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'll probably be, end up being a writer. And, you know, I write a few things occasionally, but it just didn't turn out to be that this was going to be my calling in the magazine. Because when I got there, I got on really, really well with my, you know, previous boss whose job I eventually now have because um, I was just so interested in models and I don't you know I don't know where that sort of ever came from but it suddenly it was something that I was really interested in and really loved like kind of like the knots and bolts of like putting things together putting teams together and like 
problem solving and you know that wasn't ever something that was explained to me as a job like I didn't know that and that was there was someone you know there was a team in the office doing that because you kind of don't think everyone just looks at the pictures and thinks oh well gosh what a clever photographer and you don't think like <laughs> <laughs> that, that one man that. did yeah, all of that yeah, exactly <laughs> and think about the team and you know how many people it takes to put it all together do you think that because I think that's one of the most tricky things about about most industries but you know, film and fashion and perhaps even publishing are all kind of, or journalism probably as well, are all particularly tricky for this. We're so, as kind of growing up, we're so aware of the headline role in any industry, but those jobs like yours are actually kind of invisible, as you say, to yeah, someone totally. looking at it from the outside. And it's interesting that that was invisible to you, even though, frankly, you had a more encyclopedic knowledge yeah. at the time of, you know, certainly this magazine. Yeah, That's kind of, do you think that that's changing at all? I mean, it seems that it so. is. Yeah, I really, I think it is, you know, certainly now, like, you know, we, they have more courses, I think, you know, and people are kind of a bit more aware because, you know, certainly there've been, you know, programs about, you know, what it, what it is like in the inside. I think for a long time, the magazine history was sort of shrouded in this sort of mystery and you know people just thought we kind of like scuttled in and out of Vogue house in high heels and you know suddenly a magazine come sort of pops out like delivered by a stork but now I think it's much more open and people really do realize what's going on because everything is so much more open you know with Instagram and everything you kind of like the behind the scenes of everything and I think people also are really interested in that um, in that as well. And I think generally people are interested in what goes on behind the doors of Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're trying to be sort of more open. How, how were your expectations kind of on arrival versus the reality of being here so for something that you've kind yeah. of aspired to be yeah, in the environment totally. for so long? Well, I think that I remember, I do remember that there was a sort of, um, there was like a document that you were given when you arrived as an intern and it was basically said in bold letters, do not expect that you will be going on a photo shoot kind of thing. I think lots of people Get that out of the way early on. I think that's good. Just shut it down. Um, And really, you know, I did spend like a lot of those first few weeks. It was literally just, you were just, you're literally, you're in the fashion cupboard, which at the time now, actually we have a glorious sort of two giant fashion cupboards and it's much more fabulous. But at the time when I was there, it was an actual cupboard, like an actual like dusty, foul sort of layer. And you'd be in there with your pile of tissue paper, just literally doing returns. Or then, you know, you might be asked to like hang clothes up or line shoes up. I remember there was one editor and you had to line the shoes. Well, actually it was her assistant who was the real <laughs> piece of work. You had to line the shoes, like you'd line them up and she'd be like, what is this? And you would look down and you would say, I've lined all the shoes up. And, you know, I would have done it by colour. And she'd be like, why on earth would you have done it by colour when it clearly needs to be done alphabetically by designer? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, so it was that sort of thing. And it was lots of it was very, you know, it's like it's, you know, bo- boring to some people. But, you know, to me, I was I loved, you know, being able to handle all of these beautiful mm-hmm. clothes and also just to be there to kind of watch and listen to, you know, these amazing stylists, as I said, like Kate Phelan and Lucinda and, um, just like being around them to me was like amazing. And I was always, you know, I just had my ears pricked the entire time. And if anyone said, oh gosh, you know, I'm a bit thirsty. I'd be like, I will get you some water. What can I do for you? Like really sort of ingratiating myself. Um, and again, my old boss, she was like, oh, I don't suppose, you know, you want to help me organize these, you know, 40,000 model cards into alphabetical order. And I was like, yes, Nothing would give me greater joy than to stay here after eight o'clock on a Friday night and organize your model cards. But I did it willingly and because it was, I was just, 
I honestly, I was just so happy to be here. It was just, I would have done anything, anything anyone would have asked of me. I absolutely would have done it, um, you know, with a spring in my step. And I think, you know, that kind of thing is so noticed. We always, you know, even now, we this morning we were talking about, um, you know, because we're interviewing some girls for a position um, and the, the group was generally talking. They were like, what about this girl? And they were like, oh, don't you remember? She was the one who always left at 5.30 on the dot. Right. And we were like, hmm. And then they were like, do you know what? Maybe she's not, maybe she's not our girl. It, so it is obvious, isn't it? Whether someone has an attitude that is... Definitely. But I think it's also, it's not just about being willing to do the stuff that might sound really unglamorous. It's about understanding that that is part of collaboration yeah, definitely definitely and you know just just learn you know you can learn so much also just just by listening to what people are doing like listening listening to listening to how people are on the phone and picking up on like what is the right tone to be using like you know don't and or don't leave a phone ringing if you're sitting on the desk and your phone's ringing don't look around and sort of be terrified to do it just pick it up answer it see what you can do oh no what is this new uh, it's my real it's a real bugbear of mine um just pick it up pick it up pick it up also take a message don't 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 ever 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 tell someone oh to call back later that drives me (laughs) up the wall (laughs) like now if i call and they say can you call back and i said no i'm not calling back take a message let them know that i called and then they can return my call. It's so, it sounds so old-fashioned to take a message. It's like dictation, but it's, <laughs> it's so important. Like... And the other thing that drives me crazy, and now I'm just whinging, but is that thing where it's like, if there is a crisis emerging, so not even a fully-fledged crisis, but something dark on the horizon <laughs> coming towards you, you know what the absolute best thing to do is? Phone everybody involved. Do not send an it. email, yeah. like copying in a million no. people, and then sort of sit back and just be like, let it explode. Dealt with that. You have not dealt with it. <laughs> Absolutely it's not. Just, and that feels, I don't know, I, partly because of our reliance on technology mm. and on messaging in particular, I think, has, has changed so much. And there's that, like, I keep reading about kind of people not even ringing doorbells anymore because they stand outside and phone somebody to say that they're, or message them to say, I'm, stand, I'm on the doorstep, which strikes me as deeply perverse. No. Um, but it's part of that whole thing. It's yeah. sort of, you know, have we forgotten how to sort of do basic things? But I mean, you wouldn't be able to do your job, which requires, and we should actually talk a little yeah. bit, having just said that, you know, it's good to have visibility on jobs that are less kind of yeah. headline in any industry. We should talk about what your actual day-to-day looks like. You would not be able to do that if you were frightened of phoning people. No, God, I spend, I'm on the phone more than anyone. I actually wear a headset. Do you? Yes. yes. See, once a receptionist, always a receptionist. I know, exactly. It's sort of Madonna-esque <laughs> headset, which I just love because otherwise I would just have a bad neck from constantly doing that and it enables me to do that and also provides you know a prop should I need to enliven <laughs> everyone with this sort of dance routine <laughs> at the drop of a hat <laughs> exactly exactly um my day-to-day gosh it can be really you know it can be really different um that's you know one thing I do love about the job is that you know, it changes so, so often and it can, you know, no day is the same because no two shoots are the same and, you know, everything's constantly changing. Um, 
it can be, you know, have lots of meetings with um, my editor in chief, with Edward. We spend a lot of time talking at, you know, at the moment we're talking about what we're going to be doing for next season. So I'll meet with him, you know, either just myself or also like with our art director, um, our creative director and have a think about what photographers we want to be using, that sort of thing. Um, looking at, you know, where we are with what's, what's been shot, if things are missing from the magazine, if, you know, we're saying we're looking at the magazine and we think, oh, actually there's no studio story in here or there's nothing or the other day we had a brilliant there's nothing wearable in this issue (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that's a problem (laughs) um so we were like shit um (laughs) quickly let's do a story you know let's shoot something um you know let's shoot like a tailoring story so there's something that people that that feels more shoppable or you know or this you know that kind of thing um or are we missing like a beauty thing and that sort of so we'll we'll go through that looking at you know what's missing from or what needs to be done or if someone hasn't delivered their pictures or that sort of thing um and then i'll also be looking at the producing the shoots that we're doing so you know putting hair and makeup options on um, looking at photographers' dates, making sure that everything can work, figuring out if someone needs to go on a trip, where they're going to go. So then I might meet with um, travel PRs to talk about that. Um, models, I see lots of models, you know, when they're coming into town. So either new faces or when the bigger girls are here, you know, if they're here for another thing, they might come in and, you know, come in to see me, have a chat, we'll do um, digitals on them. So we've got recent pictures mm-hmm. of them on file. And just to see how they are, see, you know, and also meet the new girls. If You know, so say someone this morning, a girl came in who's brand new British girl holding a Burberry exclusive for the shows. So always good for me to meet all the British girls, especially in particular, because we really like to push them here. Um, You also, though, importantly, having thought at the beginning about sort of journalism, I guess, as a writer, but you do write as part of your role. And I I think what albeit not, you know, day to day, I wonder what is, I think it's an important thing about all creative industries that there is an ability to flex within a role that allows yeah. you to kind of perhaps explore things that are latent or that you have yeah, sort of definitely. burn to do. I think it's about being not afraid to put your hand up and say, oh, I can do this. So sometimes I, if, if I'm really honest, I haven't done it much recently because I'm busy and I have a two-year-old, so I'm exhausted. <laughs> I can't write a sentence. I can barely do <laughs> anything. No, um, uh, but certainly in the past, for example, when I'd, I'd fairly recently started, we put Rosie Huntington Whiteley was on the cover. Who's a model who I've known since she was like fourteen, fifteen. Um, she's sort of a friend of mine, and they were like, "Oh, we just need like a little piece to go with, um, you know, this cover shoot that we're doing with her." And I was sitting in the meeting and I just said, oh, I'll do that because, you know, I know Rosie, I've known her for years. Um, And then so I wrote this little, you know, it wasn't a big article, but it was like a nice little cover article just sort of talking about her. Or, you know, if we're, they're talking about having gone somewhere or doing somewhere, I'll say, oh, no, I've been to that hotel, you know, I'll write about it or, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, I think doing that, being able to just say, oh, I can, you know, I can do that. I can write about that, you know, and I think that's an important thing to do to kind of and like guess, to listen to what people are saying, you know, sitting on, you know, sitting on those meetings, even if you necessarily don't have to, because I think the best things come certainly here. I mean, my my previous editor always used to say the the best things happen when when you're all in a room together. That's when all the best ideas come up, when you're all kind of throwing your ideas in and then people will put their hands up to do, you know, various different things. And people who it might not necessarily be in your job description to it's not in my job description to talk about beauty, for example, but I will have an opinion on it. And as a woman, 
you know, as a woman who is a reader of the magazine, I think, you know, all of our voices here are important and we're all here for a reason. They brought this group of women together for a reason because I think we all bring something different. So we're all heard in our in our meetings and it's just about having that confidence, which I certainly, you know, I have so much more confidence in our meetings now than I did probably certainly when I was an assistant mm. um, and now coming back, um, you know, to really just say, you know, I think this or, you know, I can tell you about that if you want me to, you know, put you in touch with this person or that person. So um, I think also that's, you know, something that comes with time. So the life of an intern is full of, frankly in fashion it actually doesn't matter whether that's in publishing or in uh, on a label or you know in a shop like it's full of drudge basically but not but not defined in purely by drudge um tell me about moments where there was an opportunity that was outside the fashion cupboard I guess so in my internship here at Vogue it's it was sort of I think the coming to the last week and so I'd been here for sort of three or four weeks and I had been working really hard Um, And there was a big cover shoot coming up um, and I'd been helping them with the prep and staying late and doing all of that. So I kind of knew all of the, you know, was aware of what all the clothes that we had for it and that kind of thing. And then, but obviously knowing full well that I was not to expect to go on a photo shoot as dictated by the memo. Um, But the uh, stylist's assistant at the time, the day before, um, called in sick. Um, so, and there was no one else to go. So they had sent me along to assist her. And these, you know, nowadays we send, you know, the fashionists, fashion editors will have sort of two or three assistants, but this was a long time ago and things were leaner. Um, and so you just, there was one assistant. So that assistant was me and it was a cover shoot with Kira Knightley. Um, and we were on a boat on the Thames um, all day. And I, so I was Kate Phelan's sort of first assistant for the day and really just in my element, I just thought it was, you know, the best thing ever. And I was running around doing anything for anyone. But, you know, we met sort of, I feel like Sam at night might have been doing the hair and Val Garland was doing the makeup. And so people that now I've been working with, you know, for so many, many years, but it really was just, you know, such a great experience. And it made me really, um, you know, much more committed to, you know, really, I was like, God, you know, this is the kind of thing that I want to be doing. I want to be here. Um, and I think, you know, if I hadn't been staying until 10 o'clock lining shoes up in alphabetical order, they might not, they might not have, um, you might not have got the call. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I just remember that was a real, I was so, so elated. I think it was probably like two hours early, sort of standing on a pier in the Thames (laughs) desperately with like 12 suitcases. Yeah. I'm here guys. Come on. I think that's the important point that those moments you cannot predict the moments where you will suddenly get a break absolutely you have to be ready for looking for it all the time yeah just constantly have your ears pricked all the time because you never know and it will be that someone's sick or a crisis suddenly happens and so everyone's energy is elsewhere and you can save the day and yeah it's always about I think you know one thing that I always say to my assistant is you know, we're problem solvers and, you know, it's always about being part of the solution, not part of the problem. So when we have a problem, I my you know, normally what I do is I would never tell my editor that there's a problem until I found the solution. Mm-hmm. So it's always just about being you know, that kind of a person. And those kind of people, I think, always go far who are kind of as soon as there's a problem, don't freak out 
because there's a problem or if you hear that there's a problem going on think in your mind you know how could I fix this could I offer to you know someone spilt something down the top could I offer to be the person who takes it to a dry cleaner or do you have some kind of intimate knowledge of something else that you can bring to the table to say oh actually do you know what my friend is a you know a seamstress she could come and do you know or any kind mm-hmm. of those little things it's about thinking outside the box and just bringing in you know always being on hand to do that did you ever have a moment early on either interning or kind of early on in your career where you really massively fucked something up because <laughs> <laughs> I think that's always really interesting I mean, how you, know you handle that do you know what I did um is this is I mean this is showing my age in the in the ye olden days <laughs> we used to fax out our call sheets wow Oh my God, it was this incredibly laborious process, um, obviously. So you'd have to fax them to literally, well, in those days it was probably only about 15 people. Now it's like 30 right. that you send them out to, but it was done by email. So I would there, one of my jobs was to fax out the call sheets. And obviously we're still, you know, now very secretive about who we send our, the information to and everything's, you know, um, we don't tell people who are on the cover and all this kind of thing. We were doing a shoot. One part, it was Nick Knight was doing a shoot, which was in two parts. One was with um, a new model at the time. It was her first shoot called Gemma Ward. An Australian sort of, then became a sort of supermodel of the noughties. And the other, and he was also shooting Kate Moss. I sent Kate Moss's call sheet to Gemma's agent and vice versa. And both of whom were being shot for a cover try. The other, and the oh. agent... <laughs> The agents were not aware that the other person was being shot, but then obviously were both aware of having very immediately aware. <laughs> so we received a series of very angry phone calls. And, so, and I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, I've died. And I just had to turn to my boss and I was like, I've done this. This is, this is terrible. Um, and they were all called, calling and screaming. Um, but actually my boss at the time very diplomatically just said, look, it's, you know, it's all right. And she had a great piece of advice, which I now pass on to everyone, which is nobody's died. So, you know, it was fine. She was like, they'll get over it. You know, we are shooting both for a cover try. Now they both know, you know, let the best woman win. <laughs> um, and, and actually she very kindly called up the agents and said, don't you dare scream at my assistant, That's which good. was very I, nice. I hope you do that too. I do. Good. I do. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever given to a young person starting out? I see a lot of young models and I always say stay in school because it's really, um, you know, in the fashion industry, it is a real, it is a, it's a contentious issue. You know, lots of the designers want really young girls Um you know, just because they always want who's new people are girls people haven't seen before. And also lots of the times because the clothing is cut so small that only girls, only fetuses can wear them. Um, you know, only girls who have not yet really developed, which is something that I'm very passionate about trying to change. Um, and here at Vogue, we now only work with models who are over 18. And that's something that I'm really like vehemently um, pro. Um, mm. Lots of, but lots of people don't agree, but it certainly is is my view because I think it gives people longevity to, you know, and I think that works for loads of different things. You know, starting something when you're really young, you don't really know what you're doing. Like, God, when I was 16, I was just, God knows what I was doing. I was wearing leggings and yeah. <laughs> not ironically. And um, 
And I think, you know, at 18, yes, even still at 18, you're not quite like, wouldn't say like fully formed and you need to be really kind of, I think, nurturing and having since, you know, now that I'm a mum, I'm really, you know, concerned about models welfare and I want to make sure that, you know, they're really doing, you know, doing what they want and and really being taken care of. Um, And I think staying in school and also not being afraid to stay in school and go to university, you know, these models, like so many of them actually, you know, Edie Campbell managed to go to university, get a first class degree and work throughout and be an incredibly successful model. Like, and if you, you know, if you want to do it, you can. And also, also don't be afraid to then go back to it. And I think education makes everyone more interesting in my view. I, you know, I really, because I think it gives you that time to kind of really think about what you like and, you know, make informed decisions and, um, and just, you know, that, that time that you give yourself to study is really, is really good and really formative because, you know, if, especially if you've got good teachers. So I think giving yourself, never deny yourself the access to that. And if I was coming to interview with you, which obviously would be a disaster. <laughs> I think you'd be great. <laughs> She's wincing, but if, uh, what, what would I have to do to impress you? Like, what, what is the hireable stuff when you're looking for Okay, someone? for me personally, I like people who are on time. Actually, I myself am rarely on time. <laughs> But okay. I deplore it in others. Um, but that's just one of my um, foibles. Yeah, so being on time. Um, I think being dressed, I think that's like, I think it's a preconception that people who people who work in the fashion industry that you've got to look like super fashionable. Mm. I'd actually rather people didn't look hyper fashionable because like oftentimes they generally get it wrong and I'd rather that, you know, that people were spending more time thinking about how they're being perceived by what they say than necessarily having like, you know, if, you know, we've had things when people have come in, in, you know, fat, I mean, I'm going to, I won't say fabulous, but I wouldn't call them fabulous outfits, but you know, when you're like, Oh it's an my outfit. God, it was a look, right. You know, and they can barely walk down They're walking like a geisha, like sort of cobbling down the, down the corridor in these terribly high heels. And you, you know, they don't look sort of comfortable because they're in a giant sort of, you know, yeah. Gareth P jacket. I jackets imagine that happens and it, all the time, right? Because the pressure of less up for an interview, <laughs> I mean, it's in fairness, yeah. it's not a normal interview, is it? You no, fe- it's there, when not. You feel rightly or wrongly that there's an extra layer yeah definitely yeah I would say so but then I think you know just having the confidence to strip that back and just like yeah of course we want you to look great but that's not the be all and end all and like the assistants who you know the fashion assistants that we work with you know they've already got a great sense of style of course but it's actually like much more pared back and you as you say I just want someone who's gonna who looks comfortable um you know chic capable of doing the job exactly but not like you know like you've spent eight hours you know, getting ready. Also, it's not a competition, is no, it? It's, definitely it's not. fine. Definitely not. Um, and also just, I think people who go, my assistant at the moment, um, we were hiring and we'd gone through like our normal channels. We have like a, you know, there's a Condé Nast website and the job was up on there. And I was sort of sifting through all these, you know, loads of people who apply for the job. And actually one thing is that people often apply for the jobs here at Vogue who, and I think they don't even read the job description. They just see it's Vogue and they apply. And you're kind of like, well, you have absolutely none of the skills that you really need for this job, or you've got far too many skills for the job. And you're just, people are just sort of desperate to work at the magazine that they're not really thinking correctly Straight. about oh, what is God. going to be right yeah. for them. Um, but my assistant at the moment emailed me directly 
it was clever enough to work out what my email address would be. It's not very complicated. <laughs> Emailed me directly um, with a, a PowerPoint presentation of why she wanted to work at the magazine. It was, you know, fabulous. I can barely, I'm a terrible Luddite and I find PowerPoint presentations incredibly, <laughs> incredibly really seductive. Impressive. Wow. Things I, I never thought you would hear you say. I know. I was sort of just electrified <laughs> by the PDF. And, um, but it was great. You know, it was really thorough. She'd done like picture research. It was, it, she'd listed her favorite, you know, her last three favorite issues, why she liked them, what models she liked, who, which photographer she was interested. It was, and I was just like, whoa. And I basically just hired her. So no, hyper engaged, yeah. Bothered to put the time in, as yeah, well. and also like sneaky enough to email me directly. We like sneaky, yeah. Just do it, and I because I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, this, and I was like, this is the girl. Before I'd even really met her, I was like, no one else has done that. No, um, it's take, really taken the time. Don't just send me your CV, mm. you know. Or we, and I, the, another thing that I cannot bear is the you know, the kind of the cut and paste covering letter, which is obviously just sent to everyone. Um, cause you really want, you know, a, a great covering letter can also be a really, you know, a fabulous thing, you know, seeing when they were actually, as I said, so this, my current assistant had talked about the, the recent things that we'd done, like very recently, what she liked about them, things like that. And having that kind of engagement. So, but also as a, uh, reading that note, you know, that she is talking to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not just dear Joe Blogs. And it sounds so basic. I have a passion for fashion. If I read that one more time. <laughs> I will throw myself out with a fifth floor window of those house. Avoid rhyming, generally. <laughs> generally avoid rhyming. Don't rap in an interview. There's lots of basics. In, in the book, we talk about if you can't be bothered to hone each, you'll see the yeah. every time. Oh and, God, at least, yeah. and obviously the letter every time. Then do you really want that no, job? Exactly. I mean, I think that's the question you have to ask yourself. Totally. It's really a fraction of work yeah. for potentially an, an enormous exactly. benefit. Exactly. Detail. Um, uh, who's been the biggest influence on you? I would maybe say my dad was a huge influence um, in that when I first got my job here um, many, many years ago when I was an assistant. And, you know, I think, I mean, the pay here was, I mean, it's still, it's not amazing. You don't work at Vogue for the money, just so that. <laughs> um, but the pay as an assistant in the early noughties was particularly low. Um, and my dad said, I think he thought that after I'd said I wasn't going to do music, I think he thought that maybe I was going to be like a lawyer or do something like that, um, use my brain. Um, and he said to me, I don't understand why a clever girl like you does a job where you make pocket change. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so livid with him. <laughs> for actually, for many years, I was really, really quite... Just fostering <laughs> Yeah, anger. exactly. Because he didn't get it. You know, my brother's, my dad's doctor was, my dad was a doctor. My brother was, is a trader, you know, so he, you know, makes good that money. And it was, and, it, and my father grew up incredibly poor and put himself through medical school by busking in Leicester Square. He played the violin, which is why I played oh, the violin. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's yeah, amazing. So it was sort of a, you know, that was also, there was this pressure, you know, in the family to do well or to use your brain to, to have a successful career where you, you know, just so that you could support yourself and supporting your family. And that was the most important no, thing. No, but genuinely, you know. I think you should now go back to the violin based now that I know that I feel like the end of the story is you become like the ultimate Vanessa violin. May yes I Vanessa finally remembered May. her name Vanessa May. May so yeah so I was very sort of annoyed with him for a long a long time about that that he just he didn't get it because also like a lot of people still now I think there's a lot of mystery around the fashion industry it's not something that people sort of understand um I think actually for a very long time my father couldn't 
distinguish between the devil wears Prada and my job. Like he actually thought that perhaps that was like a sort of documentary <laughs> and that was exactly how things happened. Did that horrify him? <laughs> I think he was just, I think he was just so pleased that he actually kind of knew something oh, wait, about see, it. it. But, but like actually it really was. It was like, this is a fashion cupboard. This is what you do. You have rails of clothes. You do organised photo shoots and things like that. And then finally, um, years later, I do recall him apologising to me um, just saying, you know, I'm so sorry for, you know, that I really doubted you and I gave you such a hard time. And I'm, I'm you know, I really am very proud of you. Um, and that That's meant a great deal to me. That's very as well. Exactly. <laughs> so that was a real breakthrough. And I think, I think, you know, generally I spent a lot of time really working very hard, you know, out of spite possibly. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I really wanted him to be proud of me and I really wanted to make a you know proper career and show him that, you know, this this thing that I had chosen, this path that I had chosen, it wasn't just about, you know, dresses and things like that. It was actually Valid. like it's a real thing and Vogue is important and it's got an important place in social discourse and it always will do. And that I am an important part of a really big thing. Um, and I think finally he got it. It took some time. Um, <laughs> but you won. <laughs> yeah, I wore him down. In summary. <laughs> okay, and our final question. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, there's a variety of things. I mean, the value of a good haircut. <laughs> there were some really questionable <laughs> styles for me. Um, maybe that you don't have to be the last person at the party. Sometimes... That's not That's for the best. Advice. <laughs> um, and I think now, I mean, now after night, we should still you follow still this still piece up. of advice. But I'm more and more now, it's okay to just go for a bit and leave, you know, that nothing, nothing amazing happens after one o'clock. So go I and think go that, home. I think that that is the best piece of advice we've had in answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> in all of the interviews that we've recorded. Wonderful. <laughs> Glad to be of service. Rosie Vogel Eads, thank you for being such a completely brilliant guest today. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. And if you're listening and you enjoyed this conversation too, then don't forget that the book, How to Go to Work, is published by Penguin. The link's in our show notes. So if you're interested in further reading, check that out. We'll direct you to some places that can inspire you more. Please subscribe and review this episode. It really helps new listeners find us. And if you know someone who's making decisions about who and what they want to be as they enter the world of work, do recommend this project. We're all doing it because we really think we can help people feel more confident and more prepared by sharing the essential advice no one ever tells you at the start of your career. Thank you for listening and thank you to Mark, our editor. Join me, Lucy Clayton, next time for another honest and unvarnished conversation about how to go to work. <laughs>